I've always been somebody who loved playing games. And I can remember as a kid how excited my little brother and I were when we got our first video game system. Uh, it was a Super Nintendo, and it was amazing. But, but our parents did a pretty good job of keeping us reined in. We couldn't watch or play video games all the time, not merely uh, at the average numbers. I learned recently that according to a study, by the age of 21, the average young person has played 10,000 hours of video games. It's a lot of hours. Uh, and I, I wasn't nearly that close to hours, and so I wasn't nearly that good. But my brother and I, we had some intense battles over Super Mario Brothers. Like, we battled really, really intensely. And we would fight, and we would get angry, and inevitably, he was always better than me. But eventually, I would get around where I would be beating him. And I'd be so excited. We'd be playing two-player. I'd be beating him. I'm so pumped that I'm doing better than him. And he would get so angry with me, and then I could see it coming. It's almost like it was in slow motion. And I was like, no, don't do it. And he would begin leaning towards the video game console for that button where the arrow was, the reset button. Because if he could hit that button, all of my victory would be washed away. We'd go back to the beginning, and he would get there, and I'd be like, no. And all of my one day of victory would be gone. Now, I wish, now that I'm older, that life had one of those reset buttons. I wish that things were as easy to start over and get out of as that video game was. Because I think a lot of us could use a reset button. How many of us, if, if we had our wish, like to hit a reset button and go back to February of 2020 and just erase so many things? How many of us have given the option, would like to go back to before we said what we regret saying? How many of us would love to go back to the time where we could undo what we did? Maybe go back to a time when we were more healthy. Maybe back to a time where we had more trust. We felt more connected to the people around us. See, I think that that reset button taps into an ache and a longing in our hearts. And what I've found is that even in people that we look at and go, man, they are a hot mess when it comes to their relationships. Even the people we look at and go, man, they are a train wreck when it comes to the relationships that they're in. Everybody is on the same level when it comes to this. No one wakes up and wants to have unhealthy relationships. I get to meet somebody who wakes up in the morning, their alarm goes off, they grab a cup of coffee, and they go, man, I want to fight today. I want people to hate me. I want people to ignore my calls. I want people to ghost me. I want to get into it with my spouse. I want to get into it with my kids. I want my boss to avoid me at work. No one has that desire. No one wakes up and wants to have unhealthy relationships. At the end of the day, no matter our age or our faith, we all have some common core desires. We want to be known. People really to know us. We want to be accepted. At the end of the day, we want to be loved. That's why I, I struggled so much several years ago when, when tolerance was the big buzzword. Because I said, nobody wakes up in the morning and said, man, God, can somebody please tolerate me today? No, we wake, wake up with this desire, this, this longing to be loved. 
But the problem is, is that there's obstacles in the way of getting to these things, of getting to being known and being accepted and to be loved. And, and often that obstacle is that we think the situation that we're in is everybody else's fault. Well, you know, our relationship wouldn't be so bad if they would and just fill in the blank. I wouldn't be so hard to live with if I didn't have all these things happening to me. I, I would be more patient with people if, if I could just get people to stop bringing me so much stress and pressure. You know, if, if things weren't the way they were, then I could be different. And what I've found over the years is that that kind of thinking is what keeps us stuck. Years ago, somebody told me that, Scott, if everywhere you go stinks, look at the bottom of your shoe. Because the one thing all of those places have in common is you, is me. And so if you find that in every context you're having similar relationship issues, the solution is not to stick your finger and point at them. It's look at the other four fingers that are pointing back at you and go, man, is there something that I'm bringing to this? And my hope is today to, to not leave us in that place of, of despair going, man, how do I start over? But today I hope us to help us think about this idea of a reset. And so today we're starting a new series called Help, I Need a Relationship Reset. Because I've talked to so many of you over the past 18 months and you've shared heart-wrenching, heartbreaking stories of how conflict and challenges have showed up in your family, with your friends, at work, in your neighborhood, you told me about children that you're no longer talking to, friends that you've had to hide or unfollow on Facebook, people that you used to be able to vacation with, and now you're just nervous to get through an hour dinner together. And so how do we hit the reset button and move towards relationships in a healthier way? And to do that, we're going to hang out in a passage of scripture that I think speaks profoundly to the way we are to relate to one another, that's Romans 12, 13, and 14. The, the Roman world was not an easy world to have healthy relationships in. I mean, we use a phrase that somebody stabbed you in the back. That came from Rome, the Ides of March, Brutus and Caesar. You know, you'd have children killing their parents and parents killing their children all to keep their power in the empire. In that world, if a child was born and it was unwanted, that child would be placed on the side of the road to die from exposure. It would luck out if someone else picked it up and it was allowed to live, but in a life of slavery. It was a harsh and difficult world, and in Romans 12, 13, and 14, we see some profound truths about how we can relate to one another in a healthy and Christ-centered way. So here's where we're going to begin today with the first message in this series. And this is the big idea if you're taking notes. The big idea is this, that resetting your horizontal relationships begins with resetting your vertical relationship. Eric, if you're in the back still, could we get a little bit more light in here for people to take notes? I'm seeing people using their cell phone lights, and that's not ideal, so appreciate that. Just so you know, I can't watch what you do while I preach. I can, I can multitask, so... But the big idea is that we're going to reset our horizontal relationships, but we're going to start by resetting our vertical relationships. And inherent within this big idea is this image, that there is a direct connection between our relationship with God 
and our relationships with people. That they're not disconnected. And what we're going to see in this text is that when one gets healthier, the other is impacted and vice versa. And we're going to start today in a passage of scripture that for some of you is going to be well known. It's the passage of Romans 12, 1 through 2. So if you have your Bible today and you can pull that out, as we get a little bit more light in here, you'll be able to read. And we're going to be in Romans 12 through 2. As you can see from my Bible, Romans is near the back. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And, and in Romans 12, 1 through 2, we see a passage that I love to preach. But I have, sorry, I have a hard time living it. Like, this is a fun passage to preach. And this is a frustrating passage to live. So with that warning, let's jump into it. So would you stand with me as we honor God's word this morning? We'll just read two passages, sorry, two verses together. Here's what Paul says. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. Jesus, we pray that as we open up this new series and open up your word, that you would open up our hearts. And as we long to have relationships that are more healthy, that are more life-giving, that, that honor you, we pray that you would show us ourselves and our own contributions to those relationships today. In your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I've entitled this message, Resetting Your Contribution. Whether or not there's something on your shoe, you bring you to every relationship that you're in. And, and the one thing you can control in relationships is you. And so what Paul does in this passage is he begins by talking about our contribution to our relationships. And so today I want to share with you three things that you need to know about resetting your contribution to the relationships that you're in. And here's the first thing you got to know. That your approach to relationships, doesn't matter what kind they are, will never rise higher than your awareness of God's mercy. Your approach to relationships, whether that's at home, with your family, with your coworkers, with your extended family, with people that you interact with online, that approach will never rise higher than your awareness of God's mercy. Now, Romans 12 begins with a big word, and it's the word, therefore. Now, the old pastor cliche is that whenever you see the word, therefore, you need to ask yourself, what is it there for? Because whenever a word, therefore, is used linguistically, it's reflecting on what's already happened. And so in Romans 12, 1, when Paul says, therefore, he's pointing his readers, if they're reading the letter, or his audience, if they're hearing the letter read to them out loud, to everything else that's happened so far. And Romans is one of Paul's longest and densest letters, and Romans 1 through 11 is some heavy and rich stuff. Over 11 chapters, Paul takes his readers from creation to the present day, and he walks them through everything that humanity has done to create a situation where a Savior is needed, and everything that God has done through Christ to save humanity. He talks about the role of Israel 
in that process and how God has grafted in and brought in the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to experience that salvation. Romans 8 is personally my favorite chapter in all of the Bible. It's profound. It's helped me work through issues of insecurity and things that have affected my relationships. It's rich stuff. And so what Paul says is in light of everything we've already talked about, now we're going to move in a new direction. He says, therefore. And then he continues. He says, in view of God's mercy or in view of God's mercies. So therefore, in light of everything that's happened, and in view of thinking about keeping in our perspective God's mercy, he's going to move ahead. Now, I think it's important that we understand the meaning of some words. There's a difference between the mercy of God and the grace of God. Let me kind of give you some understanding here. The word mercy is the idea of not getting what you deserve. So there is what you deserve, and when you get mercy from somebody, you're not getting what you deserve. Grace is entirely different, and grace goes above and beyond mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. My dad explained it to me like this when I was a kid. He would come home, and there would be times that I made bad decisions in my day, and my mom would say, well, wait till your father comes home. And I was super excited for my dad to come home. Not really. And my dad would, he would talk about what I did. We would talk about the choices I made, better choices I could have made. And he would say, Scott, there is what you deserve for this. And I could give that to you. But I could also give you mercy, and that would be not giving you that. I go, man, I would love some mercy today, Dad. He goes, if I gave you grace, instead of giving you what you deserve for what you did wrong, I would give you ice cream. Now, that was back before I had lactose issues. And so I worked at a frozen yogurt shop in high school. I worked for Ben and Jerry's in college. I still can't eat Haagen-Dazs because they're the big enemy of Ben and Jerry's. But, but I loved ice cream. And so I was like, that's a great thing. I would love to have some ice cream. And so what, what Paul is saying is that in view of the fact that God didn't give any of us what we deserve, in view of that, he says, keep reading. And he says, I urge you. I urge you. The word for urge is the word parakletos, and it's basically more than an ask, but less than a command. There are people in our lives that we've done some things for, you know, maybe they owe us, we've put ourselves out there, and when we ask them to do something for us, it's more than an ask because they kind of owe us, but it's less than a command because we don't have that power over them. And so Paul is saying, therefore, in, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, I'm going beyond the ask, I'm, I'm going to urge you to live a certain way. And what Paul is describing here is that the gospel doesn't just change our eternal destiny, it changes our current reality. What Christ has done for us doesn't just change what happens for us after we stop breathing. It happens to change everything that happens from the very next breath after we experience the gospel. And this is one of the reasons why many times in this place and many times over the last year when we weren't here, I challenged you and reminded you to ask yourself a question on a regular basis. Have you gotten over this? If you're a follower of Jesus and been a follower of Jesus for a number of years, the great temptation you face is that this is no longer profound to you. It's normal, common, and no big deal. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, have you gotten over the fact that what you deserved was eternal separation from God? Have you gotten over the fact that God left heaven and came to earth and put on this skin that we wear and lived a sinless and perfect life and died the most horrific, violent death, the most horrific, violent empire on earth could imagine so that you could be forgiven and he rose from the dead that you might experience new life beginning now? And if you're sitting there going, Scott, you're kind of overdoing it. You have gotten over it. And if you don't have an awareness of God's mercy, then that's never going to show up in your relationships. If you don't recognize how much mercy you've been given, that when someone wrongs you, you're never going to give them mercy. You're going to give them what they deserve. And this is the world we live in. When even followers of Jesus are treating the words of Jesus about turning the other cheek as an antiquated idea that should be thrown out. Well, that's because we've lost sight of what Christ did for us, and we're no longer living with the view of God's mercy. So friends, your approach to relationships will never rise higher than your awareness of God's mercy. Because there's a connection. As we reset our relationship here, we have to start resetting our relationship here. But Paul isn't done. He continues. Number two, he says the health of your relationships with others will never rise above the health of your relationship with God. So if you want to have healthy relationships with people, awesome, that's a great desire. But the health of your horizontal relationships will never rise higher than the health of your vertical relationships. And after he says, therefore, in view of God's mercies, I urge you, brothers and sisters, what does he urge them to do? He says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Now, I don't know what you did yesterday. At my house, I uh, ran some errands, threw a birthday party for my wife. We uh, played some games, did some cleaning. Maybe you went out and got some fresh air, went for a hike, went for a bike ride. There's one thing I know that none of you in the room here and none of you watching online did. You know how I know that? Because it would be super creepy. None of you attended a sacrifice of animals to a god. And if you did, let's talk after the service. But in the day of Rome, in the people who were hearing this letter first, the idea of a sacrifice was as normal as your everyday Saturday afternoon. It happened every day in the city to all sorts of gods. And so these Romans who had become followers of Jesus as adults, Paul's writing to them and saying, hey, remember that thing you watched where an animal would be killed and sacrificed to a God on an altar? If you remember that thing, that's what I want you to do spiritually to Christ. I want you to lay your life down completely and surrender it to him. That's what he says is true worship. In your Bible, it almost may be translated a spiritual act of worship or a reasonable act of worship. 
I remember my dad also, when I was a kid, told me, he said, Scott, you know the problem with living sacrifices? And I said, no, dad, I don't. And he said, they can get off the altar. And what Paul is saying is that even though these people had already surrendered their life to Jesus, the opportunity was there for them to say, you know what, I'm going to take some back. I'm going to give my life to you, Jesus. I'm going to surrender it all to you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. But then I'm going to just take this back for me. And what Paul is saying here in Romans 12, 1, is that in light of what God has done for us in Christ, in the cross and the empty tomb, the idea of being a living sacrifice is not ridiculous. It's actually quite reasonable. In light of a God who gave everything for us, Anything in return is reasonable. In light of a God who laid it all down for us, anything is reasonable. And when you have in your mind that mercy and that grace and that sacrifice that God gave for you as an act of his love for you, that changes how you show up in relationships. Because if God gave you mercy when you didn't deserve it, then how does that change how you treat people? Like if you're aware of every day all the things you have that you don't deserve and all the things that you didn't experience because God gave you mercy, then when you show up in a broken relationship with another broken person, and I don't know, they do the things that broken people do, how do you treat them? And our world says you give them what they deserve. And yet we claim to be Christians. Little versions of Jesus who didn't give anybody what they deserved, who gave them mercy. And that's why the health of your relationship with people will never rise above the health of your relationship with Jesus. And then here's where Paul ends this first section in Romans 12. He essentially says, until something changes in you, nothing will change in your relationships. Until something changes in you, nothing will change in your relationships. Romans 12, 2. He says, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Paul presents this contrast in front of the Roman church, and it's in front of us today. And it is the either-or of conforming to this age or being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Every day, there are two options in front of us. Are we going to be conformed to the values, patterns, and ways of the age we live in? Or are we going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds to live out the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God? Now, you've got to understand, when you read conform to this age— in your brain, you think 21st century America. And it, that is relevant as we apply it today. But before it, it, this book is written to us, it's written to the Romans. And so to the Romans, it's being conformed to their age with all the things that they were dealing with and all the, the non-Christ honoring, non-life giving, non-reflective of the ways of God pieces of their culture. Because I think we get a little bit of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery sometimes. We think we're the only age to ever have brokenness and sin. And if you think that, you need to read some history. I mean, we have a lot of competition. 
But in the age of, of Rome, it was an incredibly hostile, godless culture. They didn't have social media to broadcast it, but they were still really wicked. And in that moment, Paul says, you can either be conformed to this age, but I'm urging you not to, I'm urging you to be transformed. So in our age, what are those things? What are those things that we are being invited every day to conform to? And I just picked two to pick on today. I could have gone on for the whole rest of the day with this, but you don't have time for that. I just picked two. And those two are individualism and isolation. Our world in 21st century America is shaped by radical individualism. That you are an entity all to your own. No one can or should tell you how to understand yourself, define yourself, live your life. And this kind of individualism is really hard to compute with a book that from the very beginning of time says it's not good for us to be alone. And in the end says it's impossible for us to be like Jesus by ourselves. Even the book itself, all 66 books, none of them were written with the intention of you having your own personal copy that you read and decide by yourself even what it means. The book of Romans was written to the church in Rome and it was read as a group. Now I know we all have our Bibles. Some of you have five or ten copies. But individualism twists and contorts the way that Christ called us to live. And then there's isolation. I mean, we had an isolation problem before March of 2020. Now we have a pandemic of isolation. In 2013, the nation of Great Britain named a minister of isolation. On par with the minister of defense, the minister of education, the minister of commerce is the minister of isolation. Because in Great Britain, they had attached a dollar value to what isolation was doing to their economy. And it started with a B billions of dollars. It was on par with cancer and heart disease. And friends, some of you who are watching at home have become more isolated through this last year, not less. And I love the ability to help you participate in this experience, but you were not designed and intended to follow Jesus by yourself. In the scriptures, there are in the New Testament alone, there's over 50 commands of one another's. Love one another, serve for one another, care for one another, carry each other's burdens. You can't do that when you live in isolation. So some of you in this series are going, Scott, this is great. Talk about relationships. I already have all the ones I need and they're healthy. Well, I'm sorry. I'm going to burst your bubble this morning. But your relationships are not static. They're either getting healthier or they're getting unhealthier. And when you ignore them, they tend to get unhealthier. And if you are isolated today and you're satisfied by that, that's a pattern of this world. That's not a pattern of the way of Jesus. And there is a pattern in every age, in the age of Rome, in our age, in the ages that follow us, that runs counter to the way of Jesus. And every day in front of us, we have this option. Will we be conformed to the patterns of this age or will we be transformed 
by the renewing of our mind. You say, Scott, what does that mean? What that means is that you begin to allow your mind to be shaped more by the ways and the words of Jesus than you are the ways and the words of insert your favorite social media personality and influencer or your favorite cable TV news host. The sad truth is that many of us listen to commentary on the news 10 to 50 times fold we listen to the words of Jesus. And just it's math. It doesn't matter that the words of God are divine. If you have a 10 to 50 fold advantage on somebody's words, your words are going to mean more because you hear them more. And so if we're going to renew our minds, we have to actually saturate our minds with the truth and the ways of Jesus. Otherwise, we'll have happened what happened this past year. Where I saw followers of Jesus saying, we can't live the ways of Jesus anymore. It doesn't work in our culture anymore. You can't give people mercy. You can't turn the other cheek. You can't love your neighbor. You can't pray for your enemy. That doesn't work in America anymore. I'm sorry if that doesn't work. It's America that's broken, not Jesus. Because at the end of the day, we renew our minds so that we may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Because this is the question that keeps us up at night. What's God's will for my life? What is God's will for this situation? God, what do I do with this relationship that has got so broken? I don't even understand how we got here, much less how we get out of here. You don't understand the will of God by conforming to this age. You discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God as you renew your mind and saturate it and marinate in the truth of God. And that's why Paul begins this passage with this, that resetting your horizontal relationships begins with setting, resetting your vertical relationships. And I'll be honest, this is not where I plan on starting this series. When I said, hey, let's talk about relationships in the fall, and then I said, hey, I think Romans 12 through 14 will work, then I went and read it, and I was like, crud. Because I'd much rather start talking about all the ways we relate to one another. But what I felt like Jesus was saying through his word is, no, no, you start with your contribution. You start with what you bring to relationships. You start with the places that you're showing up in ways that are unhelpful and unhealthy. Now, before I go to next steps, I, I need to just share a caveat with you. The, the, the data would say that in this room and watching online are some men and women who are in some extraordinary relationships. The data would say that in this room and watching online, some of you are in abusive relationships. Mentally, emotionally, maybe even physically and sexually. And to you, I want to say something really clearly. Your relationship is not going to get better just by you working on yourself. Because the abuse that you're experiencing is not your fault. It's the other person's fault. No one can do anything that's worthy of being abused. And so often in the church, what pastors like me have done is put the onus on the victim to bring the change when the onus is on the person who's doing the abuse. And so if you're being abused today, 
Your next step is to find somebody you trust, a friend, a small group leader, a pastor, a therapist, and tell them today. And figure out a way to create some separation so that you can be safe. Because there's no way for that relationship to get healthy if the abuse continues. Now, I'm not, I could go off on a tangent here and speak about other things. I'm not doing that today. I'm making those points or carving out those positions. I'm just saying, if you're listening to this and you're being abused and you're like, okay, I got to work on myself. No. You need to get safe so that health can come in the future. Let's talk about some next steps today. The back of your handout, the first next step is this. I want to invite everybody watching today, everybody here in this room, to memorize and meditate on Romans 12, 1 and 2. Those two verses that begin with therefore and end with the will of God, I want you to memorize it. Now, I know we don't memorize things anymore because we've got Alexa and Siri and Google. Some of you don't even know the phone number of your closest family. But when we don't memorize things, we lose the ability to draw them and bring them to mind immediately. And yesterday we had a party for my wife and I was responsible for cooking the meat. I did not burn the house down. I was grateful for that. And part of that process was marinating meat. I put meat in seasoning and sauces and I let it sit there for hours so that the meat soaked up all of those things. And when you memorize God's word and you meditate on it, what you're doing is you're soaking it all up so that it's in you. And tragically, many of us have spent the last 18 months meditating on the worst news about the world and humanity. Like you're a resident expert on all that's broken in the world. No wonder you're depressed. It's not a put down of depression. It's just to say for many of us, we're, we're causing our own problems. And so I would encourage you to memorize the meditate Romans 12, 1 through 2, so that you can begin to practice it. Then number two, I want to encourage you to look in the mirror before you look out the window. This is the place that, that God really used this message on me this week. Because my tendency in relationships, because I'm a broken, screwed up human, like all of you, is that when something is wrong in a relationship, my tendency to look out the window at them and what they did wrong and what, how they need to change and where they're messed up. And again and again, Jesus Christ calls me back and he says, Scott, look in the mirror. Look at your own contributions. Even if it's just enabling and allowing and not saying anything about what's wrong and broken. And so this week, you're going to hit a wall in a relationship. Somebody's going to do something dumb. Somebody's going to say something stupid. Somebody's going to hurt you, betray you, disappoint you, not meet your expectations. It may happen before brunch today. I don't know. And in that moment, you're going to be tempted to look out the window at them and go, man, why can't they change? Man, when will they get it together? And I don't know the answers to those questions. But what if instead you looked in the mirror? and said, man, what is my contribution here? What do I bring to this? What do I contribute to this? And then number three, repeat one and two. You were hoping I'd give you something else so you could avoid that second one, weren't you? But see, that's the thing is a lot of us go, okay, did that, move on, did that, move on. And so many things about becoming healthy in our relationship with God and becoming healthy in our relationship with other people are repetition. 
And yet we live in a world that is so addicted to novelty. We're like, man, I'm not watching the same movie twice. I'm not going to the same place again. I want to have new, new, new. And part of renewing is repeating. And so I want to encourage you to repeat those things this week. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to be back in this place. We thank you for the fact that you are powerful and capable of not only transforming us from death to life, you're capable of transforming our relationships from unhealthy to healthy. We don't control or have influence over those other people that we're in relationships with. We're not going to stand before you and give an account for what they did or how they lived or what they said. No, we're going to stand before you for us. And in every relationship we're in today, Jesus, I pray that your words would sink deep into our souls. And that you would show us how we can contribute to our relationships in ways that honor you. In ways that give life. And in ways that follow your pattern and way, not just the ways of our age. Jesus, it's so easy for our relationships to end up in the ditch. And some of us, we played a role in that in the last couple of years. But we thank you that there is mercy and grace to cover all of our sin, even our relational sin. And we pray that you would work in this season to heal, to make whole, to redeem, and to reset. That's been your work for thousands of years, and we pray that it continues even here in our midst. In your name we pray. Amen.